Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. As we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy, and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Trig Beals, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigby, welcome back. Reed, thanks for having me on again. It's good to be back. So Trigby, today I want to talk about Russia and Ukraine with special attention to the rhetoric that we continue to hear from Tucker Carlson and the fellow travelers here in the U.S., as well as what all this means for the 2022 elections that are getting closer every day. But before we do that, I want to talk about Vladimir Putin's speech this week and the rhetoric that we were hearing and what that means for what we see you know, in the future and what it also means historically. So on Wednesday, he gave this, I don't know what else to call it, Trigby, but like a chilling fascistic address. He said, quote, the Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors and simply spit them out like a fly that accidentally flew into their mouths. He even went further and said, quote, I am convinced that such a natural and necessary self-purification of society will only strengthen our country, our solidarity, cohesion, and readiness to respond to any challenges. I mean, Trigby, this is like blood and soil. Like this could be the Sport Palace, 1934. Right. So a couple of thoughts. One, it was pretty unhinged. For somebody that has always been perceived in the West as calculating and somebody who's thinking through, clearly he has his FSB roots, but trying to manipulate that was pretty unhinged. It had echoes of Stalin. It had echoes of fascism. But at the end of the day, I think what we're seeing is somebody who's isolated, cornered, and what makes things dangerous is you have someone who in his own mind, when he uses the word me or Russia, they're used interchangeably. He isn't Russia any more than any leader is the state. But he's descended into that. And he's also in a position where, and you're seeing this already, you know, he's arresting his own FSB officers. There's reports that the thousand personal staff that work with him have all been swapped out. You have to understand, he is a guy who has the entire spotlight of the world on him. He has Zelensky, who has incredible moral high ground pressing on him. He's isolated, he's alone. That's what makes him dangerous. But at the same time, he looks like an autocrat whose days are numbered. I've seen a lot of them. 
how exactly it goes and what brings that about, I don't know. So I want to think about this in the historical perspective. So with the exception of 10-ish years of sort of pseudo-democracy, you know, mixed with a healthy dose of kleptocracy in the, you know, from 1990 to 2000, Russia as a country has never been a democracy, never even close. No, I mean, certainly not in a Jeffersonian sense that we would think about as a democracy. I mean, before the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, they go back to 1917. Before that, it was, what, five, six hundred years of czars. And then, yeah, I assume, you know, prior to that, petty warlords and rulers. And so this is not a region like a lot of the other places in the world that are democracy, freedom of expression, freedom of demonstration, civil disobedience, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. Like these are not things that maybe come naturally to the Russian people. And so do you think that looking back at this historically, even if a Vladimir Putin goes in whatever form that is, like we shouldn't expect that suddenly like Alexis de Tocqueville would travel there and document Russian democracy, right? Yeah. I mean, as you were saying that, and I've thought about him a lot recently because it was the anniversary of his being murdered. My good friend Boris Nemtsov, who was a leader of the opposition in Russia and was gunned down in front of the Kremlin, you know, he would always take issue with those who would say, well, they're Slavic, democracy doesn't work for them, or they're Russians, they have no history, they want strongmen. I don't necessarily think, you know, historically, that's been the pattern. But, you know, it's kind of a chicken or egg argument. Do they get that because they want that, or do they not want that, but that's what they get? If you think about Russian history and culture, you know, there's some beautiful elements to it. Tolstoy and Chekhov, amazing. The Bolshoi, there's a lot of amazing cultural stuff to Russia. But it's the sickness that has lied within that society that allows that in some ways. And, you know, I don't know that we should resign ourselves from Russia having not being able to become a democracy. I think the bigger issue with Russia is that they never really have had an honest accounting of their actions. After World War II, you know, Germany had to account for what they did. Russians never accounted for what Stalin did. They were never forced to have a reconciliation. And, you know, one of the parts of NATO and the EU, if you look at the countries that aspired and got in that were part of the Soviet orbit, you know, NATO and the EU forced a reconciliation. And in the countries that got into NATO, you know, they had to make amends for property that had been seized from Jewish people, for example, and give it back or make repatriations. They had to have a soul searching about what happened. That never happened in Russia. It had started to happen in Ukraine. And you see that with Zelensky, a Jewish president. And Russia has never accounted for its actions. And their actions, in some cases, were far more egregious than elsewhere. The healing starts with that. Now they're going to have to answer for this, too. So in his speech, he also referenced people that have villas in Italy and Miami. Yeah, he mentioned the ones who live in the West, but he actually did a carve out for what appeared to be his own mistress. Right. So I guess my question would be, by that reference, is he saying you people come home or I'm watching you don't get any ideas? And we're talking about the oligarch class, obviously. I don't think it was a call to them. If you listen to the rest of the speech, if I were an oligarch and I had a place in Miami or in Milan, I don't know that I would be on my private jet back to Moscow at the moment. I think I'd be trying to figure out what I have to do to be able to stay there. I mean, the speech had so many echoes of Stalin. He's clearly paranoid. 
He's paranoid about that class getting him. He's angry that we in the West have been pinching him. You know, I said when I was on the podcast with you right before all of this started, he was placing a bet on our division. And the truth of the matter is, both domestically and internationally, and I think Joe Biden deserves a ton of credit for this, and so does Vladimir Putin, we're far less divided than he thought. In fact, we're pretty united. Now that gets into, though, we have a subset of people like Donald Trump, who said Putin's a savvy and a genius, and those like Tucker Carlson and Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mike Pompeo, who are literally on Russian television having what they've said here repeated. So we do have an element that isn't united, that's still trying to divide around this. And the truth of the matter is, I think every American and every candidate running needs to be asked who's a bigger threat to America, Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden. And every candidate should be forced to answer that question because that is a defining line, because that's what Tucker's trying to say. And that's ridiculous. It's not serious. Well, let me ask you this before we get to Tucker, and we will get to him. I want to talk about what I've seen on Russian media, which can only be described, I guess, for those of us who remember the beginning of the Iraq war in 2003 as sort of a Baghdad Bob situation. Now you have every Russian TV outlet saying, we are not bombing. This is all NATO lies. You know, nothing is happening. I mean, who is that consumption for? Because clearly the rest of the world knows it's not true. Clearly we see what's coming out of Ukraine. This is not like wag the dog, right, where they did it on a soundstage, right? Like this is real life. So is that for domestic consumption? Is that sort of like when Trump's own campaign ran Trump ads on Fox News to make the leader feel better? Like what's the point of that ultimately? Yeah, the point is to make those further up the food chain happy. And, you know, I watch people on TV or read on the internet people who are talking about what's happening, and they'll say things like, well, 50% of Russians agree with this, or 60 in a poll, so the media must be working, or they must not be getting the information. First of all, the people who work at Russian state television know exactly what's going on, and they know that what they're doing each day is perpetrating falsehoods. And you saw an example of this with the woman who went and held up the sign it said they're lying to you, right? She had had enough. She was like, you know, Michael Douglas in the movie falling down, not taking it anymore, right? There's this assumption, and a lot of times Americans' punditry class will say, well, you know, the Russian people, they get this. Well, first of all, you know, having done a ton of work in those parts of the world, I know this. When you do a survey, and if you're a Russian, read and I say to you, do you think Vladimir Putin's the greatest president ever? Or do you think he's a rotten president? There's a massive disincentive for you to say he's a rotten president. Right, because the person taking the survey is assuredly going to tell somebody about it. Right. And the same is true for those people that are on the news. Now, here's the thing. Don't assume that the people who have to perpetrate the propaganda and know the truth, that they don't resent horribly the fact that they're forced to do that. It's basically forced prostitution. Or the generals. You know, you saw the look on the generals' faces from that picture when Putin's saying, I want to put our nuclear forces on super secret, double probation alert, whatever it was. So we have to understand that you've got this guy who's incredibly isolated. He's ranting. And we have to understand like the dynamic of what's going on there. He's losing. He's losing on the battlefield. He has lost all credibility internationally. And to a degree, our role in all of this should be to aid the Ukrainians, 
so that they continue to fight in ways that we can without giving Putin what he really wants. And what he would like to do is change the subject. He would like to make this about NATO or threats not to him, but real threats to Russia. Because I'm not sure that if you honestly went to most Russian people and you said, is this about Russia or is this about Vladimir Putin? We don't want him to be able to escape the blame with his own people. And I think most of them, if they were in a position to answer honestly, even those on Russian TV, would do that. And it does get into why the Tucker Carlsons and the people here who get used by Russian TV, because they're parroting the talking points, become so insidious. Because that actually has an impact in his efforts to try and say, well, there are alternative voices. Well, and so let's talk about alternative voices and, um, as Kellyanne Conway called them, alternative facts. As we look here three weeks into this war, Trigby, before it started, Tucker Carlson was all in on Putin. A lot of the authoritarian white nationalist media was all in on Putin. They quickly got on the wrong side of that when the Ukrainian defense forces and the Ukrainian president showed incredible resolve and skill and determination against a Russian army that seemed dispirited, unwilling to fight in many cases, abandoning their vehicles and not taking ground, not only not quickly, but not at all. So now the not only the Republican Party, even the parts of it that we would call normal, such as they are, are now all scrambling around. But it's weird because if you look at like Fox News Day side now, they're talking about, you know, when Zelensky gives a speech to Congress, they're talking about him in sort of Churchillian terms, because you, this is the thing you talked about with the Russian state media. And I want to get your sense of it inside of a place like Fox's, you know, Brett Baer, who's, you know, their evening anchor, five o'clock news anchor, legitimate straight journalist. Right. And he was at the Pentagon for many years before that. And you've got Jennifer Griffin, who, again, has been a longtime national security foreign correspondent. And then you saw, you know, there was something earlier in the week where Greg Gutfeld, who every time I see and hear his name, his name is an onomatopoeia. He is a Gutfeld of epic proportions. And he said all this fawning media coverage over the Ukrainians is just to build sympathy. And the correspondent who's on the ground who ended up being injured and two of his crew, cameraman and a local producer, were killed, you know, when the Russians attacked them, said, Greg, that's not what this is about. This isn't to build sympathy. This is what's really happening. And then Gutfeld even said after the man was injured and those two people were killed, never apologized, just described this sort of kerfuffle. And so how does the House of Fox live with itself right now? Then I want to get to Tucker and the crazies in particular, but I want to compare what's going on within the Russian media with what's going on within what I'll call the, um, the Russian curious media, which is Fox News. So one... You know, the excuse always gets made with Fox News that there's the news division and the entertainment division. But I don't think that their viewers necessarily get the entertainment division and the news division are two separate pieces. And so it is kind of ironic, right? Because you have serious journalists, but it's completely incongruent with what the entertainment people do in the evening because their entire business model is built around extremism. You know, I don't know how they justify it. I don't know how they rationalize it when they, unlike those at Channel One in Russia, they have no choice. If you move to one of the other state-operated TV, you're just doing the same thing. Whereas, you know, Chris Wallace was able to say, my contract's up, 
see you later. I'm going to CNN Plus, and I'll be able to do what I do without having to be linked to that. Um, I can't imagine they're not troubled. In fact, I'm sure they are. You know, I tweeted recently, a wise Ukrainian friend once said to me, and she was a hero of Lithuania's drive to independence. She had never said this to me. I learned it from somebody else, this woman who'd been translating at a lot of my seminars for Belarusians and Russians and Ukrainians this years ago. Turns out she had been given one of the highest medals Lithuania gives, kind of the equivalent of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, because on the night of January 13th, 1991, when Soviet tanks rolled out of their barracks to go crush the Lithuanian parliament, you know, the people decided to shield the parliament with their bodies. And she was a student. She was 19 years old. And she organized all the other foreign students from the other republics to come and stand with the Lithuanians. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Well, she had never said this, but I knew this. And one day I'd asked her about Belarusians and people I was working with. And she said, you know, Trigvi, all of us can say that we know what we would do, you know, if the time came to go to the barricades for democracy and freedom and to risk your life. But she said, I found that you never really know for sure until that hypothetical becomes your reality, what you'll do. And I think that goes on at Fox News in any of these places, right? They can come up with reasons to justify it. But at some point, it becomes real and it's a real choice. And, you know, it's impossible to say how people justify that. It really is hard. You're clearly seeing Ukrainians. I think Putin underestimated how many of them would be willing to do it. And, you know, the other factor, and actually I watched something and people should, if they're interested in this. So on Hulu, George Stephanopoulos has this thing, Two Men at War, and it talks about Putin versus Zelensky at the start of it from the context of them and what they grew up with. Putin being a child of Stalingrad right after World War II and going into the KGB and the Soviet Union falling apart, and Zelensky being a child, 30 years younger, Soviet Union falls apart, and the opportunities that that created for him. So in the case of Putin, he sees the fall of the Soviet Union as the worst geopolitical catastrophe in history, and Zelensky sees it as an opportunity to become an actor, you know, and build a business and all the rest of it, and eventually he became president. That really is what, at its heart, this is about, is the past versus the future. And here at home, for those at Fox News, you know, at some point, you would think that they would say, this either has to be reformed from within or we're leaving the building. It just comes down to an individual choice. I want to talk about Carlson in particular, but also how they fit into the Marjorie Taylor Greene who gave a speech about, you know, don't be fooled by Zelensky. Of course, they had a camera on her during Zelensky's speech, in which case when there was a standing ovation, she did not clap, right? She was fooling around on her phone, as was Joe Manchin. And then there was a guy who's running for secretary of state in Nevada who was on, you know, some other right-wing wacko YouTube deal, whereas like Zelensky's just a puppet. This is the deep state at work. One, where does that stuff come from? Like, because these guys, most of them aren't bright enough to come up with it on their own. And secondly, who is it aimed at in this country? I think the latter is easier to answer than the former. Who is it aimed at? I mean, we've talked about this in the past on the podcast, obviously before all of this went down. You know, Fox's entire business model, and to some degree talk radio, they're built on extremism. They're built on people who've reached a point of overconfidence and the rightness of their answers and intolerance to people that have a different worldview. And so 
there's always got to be the next outrage and the next outrage creates a race to the bottom to get more outrageous and look at how ridiculous these are to create more intolerance because people who are intolerant tune in to see what the next outrage is. And even if that stuff is literally about something very serious, like the war in Ukraine and where it could lead and what it means geopolitically, doesn't really matter to them because they're thinking of things in the context of how they make a profit. To the earlier part of the question, you know, I don't know internally how that process works. I mean, the process of talking points that the Russians are taking, you know, the denazification thing was Putin himself. Marjorie Taylor Greene literally used those same words. Tucker Carlson, you know, saying Ukraine's not really a state. That literally is Russian talking points. But Tucker has a long history of taking Russian talking points. And where does he get them? I mean, they're pretty effective at getting those talking points moving across platforms. They're probably going to be a lot less effective now. Well, and then there was Candace Owens, who this week also responded to something. It was like, Ukrainians only speak Russian. They're the same ethnically. It wasn't even a thing until 1989. The other part, too, and maybe this goes to your remark about the overconfidence, like no one's ever read a book. Well, I mean, and this gets back to something else. Rachel Campos Duffy. Jesus, did you see that? <laughs> it's NATO's fault. We provoked them. I mean, what the hell? But then think about her background. She's a freaking reality TV star. And she wasn't even 30 years ago on the first version of The Real World, wasn't even the smart one. It may turn out Puck, who they kicked off the show for not getting along with her, was actually <laughs> the brightest one of the bunch. So listen, Rachel Campos Duffy says it's on us. But it begs the question, that's not somebody who's serious. And we've had the luxury in the United States for the last 30 years, since the Berlin Wall came down, of having politics that didn't have to be serious. We had that luxury. And I will tell you, a lot of our neighbors in places like Poland, our allies in Poland or Lithuania or the Baltic states, those who are on the front line, Ukraine, their politics has been deadly serious and has had to be. And we see the manifestation of a lack of seriousness across our politics. We particularly saw it after 1-6 when something incredibly serious happened and an unwillingness to be serious. And we even have politicians who are kind of serious who have to subscribe to basically this desire amongst our masses, in part because of things like Fox News and talk radio and on the left too, it happens. There's a desire for them to be pundits. It's like they demand pundits, not serious people. And now we have a really serious problem. We have the greatest geopolitical crisis since the Cuban Missile Crisis. We are in a challenging environment that requires incredible seriousness. It has Hobson's choices. Either choice could lead to very bad things. And I hope what this is going to do is make a litmus test becoming that politicians need to be serious first and foremost, not just pundits talking about outrage, either on the left or the right. And I'll tell you what's an example of this. You know, Marco Rubio, I'm going to use a Democrat and a Republican. Marco Rubio had a tweet about gas prices and building the pipeline. And that's a 10-year-from-now solution. Then you have Elizabeth Warren. We have to use this to transition to green energy. Neither of those are politicians being serious, and they, quite honestly, both should know better. If they wanted to be serious, they would get on the phone with each other because they can actually do something, and they'd say, you know what? 
we're going to cut the gas tax for the time being so that working class people have a little bit lower cost for gas. And at the same time, we're going to put the rebate back on the maximum amount. So if they want a tradition from a Ford F-150 to a Ford F-150 electric, they can. That's what serious politicians would do. They'd look for compromise, not throw out some red meat crap for the basis. So let's stay on this political track. So Trigvi, this is going to sound a little bit off base, but I want to talk about the Republican Electoral Coalition. I think I mentioned on another recent podcast, an old friend of mine in California, very conservative person, asked me a couple of weekends ago, does the Russia thing finally rid us of Trump? This is a person who voted for Trump twice and was probably pretty good with the conservative judges and lower taxes. The answer was, I told him I didn't think it did, but the question to me was more interesting. That's one. Secondly, you see the support for Biden on handling of Ukraine. You know, it looks like even a solid plurality of Republicans are in support of his actions. 80% are in support of the Ukrainians and, you know, the fight for democracy. The fight for democracy is now starting to rise as an issue. Sometimes we, uh, we just say, okay, everybody else caught up with us and now we'll keep running down the road. But then there was a public religion research institute survey out today about how Americans feel about LGBTQ issues. And why I'm bringing this up, it was interesting, was that on even the most basic issues, you know, same-sex marriage off the charts, and even, you know, a slim majority of Republicans, you know, agree with it. And then they talked about whether or not a private business should be able to deny service to someone based on religious reasons. And it was a slight majority of Republicans who said they should. But that means that there's, you know, nearly half of Republicans that don't. So it seems to me that a lot of the white nationalist, Christian, evangelical culture war stuff, you know, maybe it gets you through primaries, but it sure doesn't look like it's going to get you over the hill if that's all you're going to talk about come November. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head. It might get you through a Republican primary, but it's really problematic in a general election. And that's where the battle between in the Republican Party between those politicians who are serious and those who are not serious. You think about the Wyoming primary, right? Liz Cheney versus Hagman, who's all in for Trump. That's serious versus not serious. And we'll see where the rubber meets the road. Ronda Santos is going to be an interesting case study, and I'm going to vent for a bit. So Ronda Santos clearly seems to have made a decision that a central part of his campaign is going to be don't say gay and attacking what he views as a woke corporation, Walt Disney, because they're making America less great. Well, here's the part that just slays me about that. First of all, there are few American companies that have done more to make America perceived as great than Walt Disney. Like people around the planet dream of taking their kids to Disney. So first of all, who the hell is Ron DeSantos to be preaching at Walt Disney, what it means to make America great? Like Walt Disney has been making America great since Ron DeSantos was a glimmer in his grandparents' eye. So there's that. Second of all, what has made Disney great? What's made the state of Florida great? And what's made America great is diversity and people coming from all over and really being judged by their will to work hard. Have we been imperfect in that in some ways? Yes. But what Ron DeSantos is doing is just so not serious and so shrill in so many ways. And that's going on across the Republican Party. And quite frankly, you know, my girls are getting a little bit older as are yours. But, you know, there's part of me that's like, <laughs> I'd like to take them to Disney just one last time, just out of solidarity with them. 
this is what these people do. They try and inject themselves into everything. You've seen it with professional sports. You've seen it with Coca-Cola. Like They go after anyone and everyone to inject their division into every entity. So we have to quit allowing them to have the high ground on all of this. And you know, we obviously work on that at the Lincoln Project, you and I, all the time. So there's that. I think there is a massive opportunity, and Reed, you're going to laugh about this, but my mother has become a Lincoln Project podcast listener. And hey, I, I, well, hello. <laughs> hi, Mom. As you know, I mentioned her. She's like, you mentioned me on just about every podcast. So the whole Trump saying that Putin's a genius and savvy, my mom calls me up and she's like, what in the hell is he talking about? And yes, mom, you did use the word hell. She's like, what in the hell is he talking about? The Russians have been doing this forever. I mean, my God, Putin's a bad guy, right? There is a cognitive dissidence occurring amongst Republicans who are old enough to remember the Cold War, who are like, what is this guy talking about? And now part of this question is going to be, these Republicans who are serious people, they really do care about the country. Do they get that that translates into what we saw with the battle at home for democracy? And do they start saying, you know what? I'm not supporting the candidates that these guys have endorsed. I'm going to watch Tucker Carlson questioning or I'm going to start turning him off. And there is an opening now that didn't exist before because they are so in bed with Putin and doubling down on it. And that's where, you know, like we were talking about a little bit earlier before we started recording, Trigby, is, you know, there was a recently a, an appropriations bill that sailed through the U.S. House and U.S. Senate to keep the, not only to keep the U.S. government running, but also to add, I think, another $13 billion worth of aid to Ukraine. The regular cast of characters voted against it in the House, you know, the Greens, Cawthorn, Ghosts are all them. And then two Democrats, uh, Cory Bush and Ilhan Omar. Uh, then you go over to the Senate and 31 Republicans vote against it. Again, a lot of the same cast of characters. But people like Mitch McConnell voted yes. People like Kevin McCarthy voted yes, because they see, and I'm sure that there's been a polling seminar somewhere, right, that said, hey, you know what, like being on the side of Vladimir Putin in this gang, not a good idea. So now they've got to figure out where they go because they've got Trump sitting out there who, well, McConnell and Trump are a different ballgame. But for McCarthy, McCarthy needs Trump far more than Trump needs McCarthy. But McCarthy's also, you know, responsible for trying to take the U.S. House for the Republican Party. And now he's caught betwixt and between. And I bet there's a lot of folks who are like that. Oh, for sure. But with the 31 Republicans, I guess it's 31. You know, there should be a shout out because, and there was a great article about how Schumer and McConnell worked together to get it through fast and actually get more money and aid to the Ukrainians. And good for them, right? Like that's both of them being serious. I don't understand the 31 that voted the other way. I mean, there were a lot of the usual suspects, but I do think for reporters who are listening to this podcast, every Republican needs to be asked again, as I said earlier, the question who is a bigger threat to the United States, Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin? Because they can't get out of that question. And it really gets to the heart of Putin, Trump, illiberalism, autocracy versus democracy, you know, because the answer is Vladimir Putin. But if they say that, since Tucker and Trump and all those people have doubled down and gotten 12% of Republicans to think that actually they're on Russia's side, it creates massive problems for them if they say that. If they say the reverse, it just about kills them for a primary in the general election. And so there is going to have to be a reckoning 
in the Republican Party, and this goes all the way back to 2015, goes all the way back to when Trump was emerging as the likely nominee, the actions that they took, at some point, there's going to have to be an accounting for what went on. And this is just a further step because it's all the same fight. Right. And so before we get out of here, where can everybody find you online? So you can find me at Twitter at Trig the Olson is probably the easiest way. And everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And I have an Instagram now. I think it's Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. If you're an Instagram person, which I barely am. But if you want to find me there, you can. Trigley, thanks for coming back. And everybody, be safe out there. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.